Which direction am I going? Uh, this way. Okay. Make a right. That a lot of musicians won't even walk out on the stage. Without? No, without one person telling them, ensuring them that a fresh battery is put in their guitars. I understand the paranoia. <laughs> John, this was years ago, man. But we played, I don't, it might have been with Ike, I don't know, but it was at the TLA. Right or left? Uh, make a right. I'm awful at directions, sorry. All right. <laughs> um, we were playing at the TLA, dude. And I'm good with this shit, you know. And I'm the lead fucking singer. And my battery dies four songs into the set. So this is ARB? Yes. Mm -hmm. Disaster. Ugh. It was the longest 45 seconds of my entire life. <laughs> As we sit here telling stories Till it's quarter after three The details are so gory that's how this I mean, seriously, who among us has not been in one of those 45-second nightmare scenarios that feels like an eternal hellfire? where it's nothing but uh, weeping and uh, gnashing of teeth. I know I have. <clears throat> and my guest today has, in his own words, been in the worst situations you could ever think of with a guitar strapped around him. But after just celebrating the 20th anniversary of a band he was nervous to name after himself, Anthony Renzulli has earned the right to say he's in it at this point in his life, for all the right reasons. You have to be when you decide to put out a solo record in 2022 that sounds like it could have been made in 1932. My friend Anthony has played just about every subgenre of rock in his career, starting out as a drummer in metal and rap rock, then shifting back to the instrument that was always within arm's reach since before he could even play it the guitar. He came into the blues through the portal of 60s rock, Cream, Zeppelin, Hendrix, and found his way back to the Delta blues, devouring music from artists like Robert Johnson and Elmore James. Here's a little taste from Anthony Renzulli's upcoming album, Mad Mad Blues. and I met up at Meadows Diner in Blackwood, New Jersey, and we talked about his long, strange journey to get back to right where he started from. Let's get right to my great conversation with the always honest, always entertaining Anthony Renzulli, right here on Talking at the Diner. Everything is on the table. Talking at the diner. And thank God I at least had one on the side of the stage. Because so you this know is the, the battery in your like, acoustic. acoustic. Right. Oh, yeah, that's the worst. 
And I'm good with that stuff, you know what I mean? Like, but I was like, ah, you know what, it'll be fine. But I think I was left on the tuner yep. backstage too long. And That'll it fucking do it. drained it. That'll do it. And I was like, oh my God. I was just at the TLA so, like, last night. Well, who'd actually. you say? Uh, James Bay. He's like a British dude, singer, songwriter guy. Very cool. Um, you just keep going straight. Yeah, I hadn't been to the TLA since, like, I don't even know. Whenever uh, Mike Levy's uh, benefit show was, like, five years ago. That was the last time I was there. Wow. But anyway, continue. How is he doing? He's great. Yeah? He actually just sent me my final... Uh, Book cover design because I hired him to do that. Oh, that's fucking! I'll show it to you. Dude, when he's get an play. incredible artist. Years ago, he did a sort of a graphics-based version of my tattoo here, okay, which I've been using on stuff for years, and that's a, that's a central piece of what's on the cover because I really, really wanted that to be like a prominent thing because I, I think can't it, wait to say it. That's I think great. It, I think it says so much about me without really having to say very much. Right. <laughs> Especially if you used it. It's like your uh, it's like your Nike logo. <laughs> My swoosh sticker. Yeah. So like it's your Air Jordan. Yeah. Air John. Air yeah. Trust me, John is a guy who makes his own album covers <laughs> and does all the digital stuff. To have somebody you could trust like that to tell you and give you direction is such a gift I would almost pay to have it. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? I would pay to have that kind of honesty and because, I don't know, like a lot of people, maybe they just want to be supportive and that's it and maybe they just don't understand. Right. So, like, well, to have that know, buddy to bounce ideas off of, the, I, I realize as I get older, it's such a gift to have those people in your art. Dude, I can't wait to read that thing. Yeah, yeah. It'll be like the third book I've ever read in my entire life. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I used to have a comprehension got, problem uh, when I was a kid, man. Oh. Everything I'd read, I wouldn't understand it. I would just be reading words, you know, and I couldn't ever put a story with it, what yeah. I was reading. And that lasted until today. You know, I just have that. But I notice, like, if I read, like, blues books or something that I'm interested in, like guitar books and stuff. It's different. It's different. I can read, I can read them all day. It's weird. I... I have an issue myself with reading, and it's only only since I've... Well, I guess I've had it since college. Like, I can't read a book for longer than about 10, 15 pages at a time, because hmm. for some reason, it's got to do with my eyes. My eyes get so tired huh. that I literally have to take a nap if I go, like, 20 pages deep. Well, don't, don't, well, don't read in books... It does put a lot of people to sleep. That's what I've heard. Um, yeah. and I, regardless I, of how interesting it is, yeah, you know, it's it, just the act of the act of scanning the page with my eyes. Is no, but I remember having a conversation exhausting. with somebody that told me, like, "Oh, I read at bedtime because it helps me sleep." Yeah. Oh, yeah. Me, see, I get obsessed. Like, if I find a book out in like Elmore James or something, like I'll, I'll read the whole book in one shot. Wow. I'll just sit there for hours and read it. So you've always been into the blues since day one? Since I was a child. Well, it was it was first, like, um, the first music I ever heard was, like, Michael Jackson. Uh, my father used to just listen to Cream records. And uh, okay. he loved jazz. He was a jazz musician, so it was always, like, Buddy Rich and 
Elvis was huge, Beatles. Um, it was just in my house constantly. So, like, in before the internet, that's all we knew because that's all, you know, mm-hmm. I didn't even know where to buy music. I was such a little kid. So that's, like, the first sounds I ever heard. So do you think you came to the blues by way of, like... Bands that were playing like electrified yeah, it was versions the, of it. It was all the Hendrix British and all the and English British blues stuff is how I discovered like my first album of the diners here on the left. Meadows. Oh, the Meadows. <laughs> the here we Meadow. go. Okay. Meadow. Um, the first vinyl record I ever heard in my life with music on it. First vinyl was a Superman <laughs> vinyl. Remember how they used to have the radio broadcast? In the yeah, 50s and 60s? yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was a whole vinyl of that. And I was a little kid, so like, you know. You just park here, yeah, right like, there. Oh, front row. Look at us. You must be in the front row. But the first actual record of music I ever put on, I was about six years old. I had a He-Man record player I got for my birthday. I love know, it. Because my birthday is the day after Christmas, so I got a I record. I remember that yeah. now. It was I got a like... record player for my sixth birthday or whatever. And the first album, my dad just put on Led Zeppelin 2 and the first sounds I ever heard in rock and roll was a whole lot of love is the first wow and from then dude like it was that's I'm I'm fucking you're hooked <laughs> dude the funny part is is that it hasn't gone away you know yeah Jesus is the hardest act to follow dude for birthdays you know what I mean like uh, he's, I hear you uh so is this a favorite spot of yours? Since for, oh my God, since my early 20s, yeah. Wow. And I haven't been here in a long time. A lot of, lot of memories here, I Ah, uh, a lot of drunken memories, yes. <laughs> a lot of non-memories here. And day after, yeah, a lot of non-memories. <laughs> All right, to it in the furthest corner possible, if you have it. <laughs> Thank you. Perfect. All right. <laughs> Away from the baby. <laughs> oh, so the, uh, the He-Man record player. My mom got me a He-Man record player when I was like six or seven. Mm-hmm. And the first piece of music I ever remember putting on and like watching the record spin was Led Zeppelin too, because that was just in my dad's collection. He just picked it out and put it on. That's great. And those sounds, even when I hear that intro, like it's uh, it, it's amazing how it takes you right back there. And Transports like, you to a certain. It's time not so much all the live versions, but that specific recording mm-hmm. on that on that second record. Yeah. You hear that studio version. It's uh, it's crazy. So Zeppelin was basically the portal for me to to all of this. And when YouTube hit in like 05, or was it 05, 06, it started really becoming popular. And all these bootlegs started resurfacing of like Zeppelin and stuff. And then you start reading the comments and saying like, oh, well, he got it from this guy or whatever. And then I've been going backwards 
I'm in like 1920s, 1930s music, and I can't leave. Wow. I'm just stuck there now. That's I, I went so far back that I'm just stuck. You know, like I look right. at something kind of different now. Like, like you know, they were just. I still think they're incredible. You know, they were just co-opting somebody else's pure thing a little bit. Like, Nobody made it cooler than Led Zeppelin. Right. They made it. Co- they had so much swagger. Yeah. And the whole being mysterious is so huge in music. Mm-hmm. People put out way too much stuff. It, there's no mystery in it anymore. And I think that's part of the reason why it's why people are just like, eh. Hi, how are we? Yeah. Hi, how you doing? Hi, how are you? Can I grab his drinks? Uh, sure. <laughs> I'll do a lemon water. Uh, I'll take a water and a coffee, please. Thank you. But then I went down a path of, like, in my early 20s, you know, I went down a very heavy metal path. And I was like a heavy metal drummer because I started out with drums. Yeah. And in school, it was just jazz and fusion and concert. And when you're 16, 15, you don't want to play that yet. No. You know? <laughs> you want to just, like... Eat something. Nirvana was breaking. I was the same way. I mean, I'm obviously like a little, I'm a generation earlier, but like, you know, when I started playing music, it was drums for me. And so. I noticed that about you. Pounding away. Yeah. It's very satisfying. It really is. And. And, and if people tell you they like you too, on top of it, oh my god! Yeah, you just never. Well, want to stop. you are a far, far more sophisticated uh, <laughs> drummer than I ever was. But obviously, I met you when you were doing your, your band solo stuff. Yeah. Um, but you had been the drummer in bands before. Yes, correct. And your progression fascinates me <laughs> because you went from okay, I'm the drummer. In like some pretty heavy bands. I was in a rock rap band in the '90s, dude. We yeah. would bring two to seven hundred people a show. We and would the name have five. Band was Ill Rendition. Ill Rendition. We yeah. were playing with like E Town Concrete, Wolfpack, all the Hatebreed, all those hardcore bands. Yeah. And I'm 16, 17. Like, oh, I didn't know it was this easy. You had very different hair back then, too. I had long locks. You yeah, had the long yeah. locks. That's why I'm half bald now. <laughs> Um, but we would play those shows and we'd bring anywhere from two, just by hanging fl- like paper flyers on a telephone yeah. pole, what we'd bring two to 700 time. people. <laughs> and then it went south. And then I was like, you know what? Well, I'll start my own band and I'll show everybody. And I got up there on that first show and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> oh my it God. was such a rude awakening. <laughs> I went from hearing people screaming and cheering, dancing and hardcore dancing to nothing. At 20 years old. Right. And I was like... And it was a different style of music. And look, like, we weren't, like, big, like, taking over the world. It was just around here. Right. You know what I mean? But it was still... Listen, multiple hundreds of people wherever... It's great energy. It's something. It's great energy. Yeah. It really... Especially when they know the material. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, it's great. Singing it back. I know you know that. Yeah, that's great. But then it was just such a rude awakening. And, like... I just went down this solo path where I just felt better writing and playing drums on my own. So from so it's a rude so awakening. From, it was a rude awakening, going from that to nothing. But I was like, all right, I just gotta. And then I'm 20. You know what I mean? And you're going 20 once, and you're drinking every night. You're, it was such a cloudy era for me. A lot of rude awakenings. <laughs> <It's cloudy. laughs> 
Oh my god. But but the bands that I were in were so much fun. There was a band Lip Splinter that I was in, which was another rock Lip rap Splinter? Band. Lip Splinter. Oh, okay. Lip Splinter. I'll split your lip. Which is one of the better names of a band that I was in. It's way <laughs> what better. Are, what than, are some others? It's better than the Anthony Renzulli band. That's a, well, well, Lip know. Splinter's a great name. That's a great name. All right. So we had that band. Um, and then I did like some fill-ins for people. I filled in for Bong Hits for Jesus, playing drums for a while. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, you you knew that whole scene pretty well. And then well, from going right? to the open mics religiously, mm-hmm. Tom Gillum, I feel Tommy. If Tommy Tunes is listening to this, I feel like I need to send him a sympathy card. We're gonna make sure for that all he gets of the torturous the open mics that I played <laughs> while he was hosting at the Grape Street. Hey, no, man, that's but part that of guy, the job, Anthony. That guy. Gave me a shot. Uh, another guy, Tony Bertelli, from the Pirates Den. The Pirates Den. Remember the oh, these guys would yeah. give me a shot every Monday, mm-hmm. and Pirates Den was Thursday. Was the Blues Jam at the Pirates Den, wow. and they throw me up there as treacherous as I was. And that's how I really practiced. Was on those empty nights. And got my Y100 gigs. Remember Y100? Of course. With Ike was there a couple times. Yeah. The John Fay power trip, <laughs> which I meant to show you a poster. I found a poster in my house from 2003. Oh, wow. It's a Grape Street poster from May 2003. you got to see the names I on this thing. I would love to see yeah, that yeah. poster. Um, you know, I talked to so many people who, you know, because I was an open mic host for a lot yeah, of years. you were. I'm actually, I'm, I'm filling in at Dobbs next week. I read week, that. That's going to be great. Really going to be fun. You know, Stage when you're doing it, there. you don't, you know, it's kind of like, well, this is a weekly gig for me. It's a job. And then over time, you establish real relationships with the people that come to this. Yeah. Friendships. Absolutely. Um, I literally like, met you at an open mic. And nowadays... Having been away from it for a while, I will reconnect with people whom I met, you know, maybe 10 years ago doing open mic or whatever. And to a person, they are all like, this is where I got my start. I wouldn't be a working musician in the manner that I am now if it wasn't for those opportunities. Every Monday, 7.30. And you you really see the value of it much more uh, clearly with some some distance behind Me and my guitar player, Jay, at the time. I had a guitar player, Jay. And he came over with me from the hardcore band that were in Dishon. And he was my first guitar player in Anthony Renzulli band thing. And we would go to Grape every in his Jeep every Monday, 7.30. And we'd be the first ones there waiting in line. Rain, sleet, or snow. Because we wanted to get that spot. Which is that a pain in the ass. In the <laughs> but we knew that the Grape was such a big deal back then. Like, and I still, like, you know, it's like a badge of honor kind of thing. To me, it's like, thinking back on it now, I remember Andrew. You remember Andrew? Andrew Geiger? Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, dude. He was another one. Dude, he plays... Scooter? He plays religiously in his own duo now. Jade, Jade Maragli told me that. The Duke Brothers. And he said he's incredible. Yeah. He's, he's great. He was such a good friend. He's another one that would always call me and give me a shot. And uh, they just let me kind of be free with it and do my thing until I got my feet wet. And then mm-hmm. I was in way too much stuff. Way too Spread much. Thin. 
way too much. I was in, I was doing my own stuff. I was in hardcore bands on the side, and I always gravitated back to my stuff. So here we are, all these years later, and I find myself back with blues and jazz. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like I took this long, crazy detour to get back Just to, to get where there. I was. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, but you're doing the blues in a way that you never did before. No, right? no. I mean, this is like the, the real... My quote blues before was emo style kind of stuff. Yeah. It was like the the, the dashboard confession of My Chemical you were Romance. Blue. <laughs> when I first came out, it was like dashboard, My Chemical Romance. All those bands were breaking mm-hmm. when I was first... My God, 2002. This is 20 years. Two days ago was 20 years wow. since I've been doing. Oh, you had an anniversary <clears throat> that you were aware of. 20 years. Holy shit. Hoping to get the record out. That's amazing. In the next couple months, but nice. but yeah, I've never done it in this Delta kind of style because we never had access to the records. Mm-hmm. We're going to find these records. You can't walk in the tunes and be like. Do you have a Robert Johnson record from 1933? And the dude's going to look at you like, what? Like, what's a 78? You You were able to rediscover these things because of the internet? Because of the internet. Yeah. As bad as I hate the internet, (laughs) I got to give it to it because I started finding all these records. Elmore James, Tommy Johnson, Robert Johnson, Sun House, Howlin' Wolf, um, Skip James, Endless. Johnny Shines, um, Hound Dog Taylor, all these names I never heard of when I was a kid, ever. And finding all that, I'm just stuck there. Well, you know, because I hear Little Richard in them, Mm -hmm. I hear Elvis in them, I hear uh, the Zeppelins in them, I hear When the Levee Breaks is a Memphis mini song, Mm -hmm. word for word, lyric for lyric. Yes. Go look it up. Memphis Mini, When the Levee Breaks. Yes. And you'll sit there at your screen and go, oh, what the fuck? Oh, what, what the fuck? It's the same song. they wrote this. It's the same fucking song. Yeah, but John Bonham made that. He really made that. Yeah, of course. Um, wow. Like I said, cooler, not better. Right. Cooler. You know, what amazes me, though, is that you have been able to actually play this music and record this music in a way that, I mean, I'm the first to admit, I am not particularly a blues guy, nor am I that knowledgeable about All my friends hate it, so it's okay. No. No, all my friends hate it. Well, here's the thing. When you hear the, it's like saying you don't like country music. When you hear the real deal of any Anything, yeah. your your tone spikes right up. Oh uh, yeah, it's like undeniable. And you know, I mean, have you been playing this way the whole time and no. not showing anybody, or yeah. did you just get yeah. good at it? No, that's a, that's a lot. That's, I've always dabbled in it, but once I stopped with all my side bands and and put all my focus here, you got more serious about it. You know, when you, when you, you know, at one point in my life, I, I lost like a lot of stuff, man, and like really went from ground zero. From like, one time I lost a, I lost a girl, an apartment, a band, and a dog all at the same time. Oh wow! Which was my own doing, not blaming it. But still, devastating. but at the same time, it's like, it's 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 a uh, you go through a separation anxiety. 
Yeah. So the only thing that ever saved me in my life was the guitar or music. So I started diving almost unhealthy. I'll listen to the blues for 13 hours straight without shutting it off. Oh. Can you imagine listening to the same song? It's like practically uh, for 13 hours straight. Did you ever see Ghost World? No. It's a movie that um, is actually uh, it's about these two girls, and uh, one of them like buys like some old blues record, and mm-hmm. there's a scene where she literally stays up all night, like puts the needle mm-hmm. back at the yeah. beginning. I can't tell you how many times I've done that. And it, for some reason, like, it, it made so much sense watching that scene because there is something so... It's primitive, man. Yeah, primal. It is primitive. You can't put... If I put the a Elmore James song on full blast here, people would get nervous. And in 30 seconds, all their feet would be moving. All of us. It's almost like they don't even know what's happening. Right. It's involuntary. And I I love that. Yeah. Because the blues is so easy to play, but it's so hard to feel. And if you can capture both, now you have something hypnotic. And that's my ultimate search in life, is to find that hypnotic. See, that's the thing. I think so many people play the blues in such a fucking hacky way mm. that's what makes people not like it yeah, <laughs> I think you're right yes. and like you know first of all thank you again for giving me your test pressing you're the I've only listened one to that's it heard three it. times oh thank you dude I, I I'm floored <laughs> it's amazing dude coming from you that's I, so big I mean it's just, thank you like, My I God! I feel like the character in you know this Thora character in Ghost World. I just like it's the most authentic I've ever been in my life. Yeah, because. In the, my early 20s and stuff, when I first met you and coming up, the goal was, and I don't know, maybe it's that way for 20-year-olds now, I don't know. The goal was to get your song on the radio, get on those MMR gigs, get on like the things that'll take you to the next level. Well, how can you do that? Well, you start writing in a certain fashion, and you start kind of writing... And listen, man, that's not the way you're supposed to write. And it took me a long time to understand that. My saying is, give me something from the pit of your soul, from the back of your stomach. Mm -hmm. Or don't give me anything. I don't want to hear it. I got to be honest with you. Don't give me your record unless you're you're spilling out your truest, purest form of your art. Of your art and of yourself. Mm Mm-hmm. Don't write a record just in hopes that you're going to get it on the radio. Yeah. And I used to do that stuff to try to get my songs out there to make them more commercially acceptable. Not alone. That's generally how people operate. But it's hard to look at yourself in the mirror and say that. Yeah. You know what I mean? So what do you want to do? I didn't like jazz, but I liked the blues part. All that British blues took me all the way back here. Mm-hmm. And for lack of a better term, I'm a complete junkie for it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's every day for me. Once in a while, I take a little break. <laughs> Maybe a day break, and then I'm back into it. Right. But the uh, the overall obsession, it saved me from all that shit I was just telling you about that I was going through at that time. And plus, like, your 30s is just a weird time in your life, especially the end of your 30s. Buckle up, kids. It's just weird. 
Because you don't know where, you know what I'm saying? Like, I've never been married. I never had no kids. It has been music since I was five years old mm-hmm. to now. And I, it saved me, and it's the only thing I gravitate towards. So, yeah, it's, it's something that you rely very heavily on, <laughs> as do I. It's unconditional, John. Ah, uh, right here. Look at that. Thank you very much. Anything else you can grab for us? Can uh, I have um, a soda? Uh, like a regular soda, Coke or Pepsi, whatever, Pepsi. whatever you have. Thank you. So you think Thank you, you could get another ketchup? This is getting pretty low. Yeah, Thanks. <laughs> We're going to need more ketchup. Did you ever see the King of Queens? The show? Like, is it, yeah, is it like ketchup? Ketchup! Ketchup! <laughs> Thank you very much. No problem. Anything else? I'm good. No, thank you very much. Enjoy. All right, here we go. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's it. The sound. That's the sound, yeah. <laughs> but I don't know, man. It's well, like, that's, it's, so far for now, I'm here. And, uh, yeah. And I, I mean, like old folk stuff, and I love, you know, it took me later in life to love and appreciate Dylan. You got to go through shit in life to appreciate a certain style of music. Mm-hmm. If you played Bob Dylan for me at 16 years old, I'd beg you to take it off the radio. I would beg you. You know, I, I know all the material. I know all of his records. I know all his songs. But I'm not a diehard. Yeah, you know, I'm a diehard blues guy. Yeah. Uh, Robert Johnson, Elmore James, Johnny Shines. That's where I live. I live there. The low down stuff. But even like, you know, Buddy Guy... All those people that that influenced the guys that I listened to when I was a little kid. Right. Zeppelin, mm-hmm. Cream, Clapton, Hendrix. My God, Hendrix is so big in my house. And my dad even liked bands like Pearl Jam, Guns N' Roses. He loved those bands. And I thought that was cool because... How long were your parents when they had you? Because I'm always curious. Uh, 30. 29 or 30. Okay, so in the 90s they would have been... She feels she can make a room. My dad was 40, early 40s. Early 40s. Oh. The fact that he dug that kind of current rock it was speaks to his... It was impressive for me. Because yeah. most dads were like, ah, oh, this music's junk, this right. music's garbage. Kind of like I am today. <laughs> everybody becomes everybody the dad be- rock. Everybody guy. becomes that, you know. But when you're a kid... This is going to crack you up. <laughs> And I know we've touched on this before. Yes. Well, we were when I was a kid. New kids on the block were huge. They were huge when I was. Oh, like, yeah. I'm talking five years old. I used to hustle new kids on the block buttons on the school playground. <laughs> and my mother got a phone call one time. Really? You know your son's selling buttons to girls in the school parking lot. Price counting. <laughs> Yeah, even at a young age, it was the it was it was the Italian in me, I guess, always hustling. So they were big, and like when they were on MTV, my dad would go, "That ain't music. Those kids are garbage. This is music." And I remember he would put on the song "Remains the Same" from Zeppelin, you know, like this is music. And I would go, "Dad, the guy's balls are hanging out of his pants," you know, like Robert Plant, <laughs> are always hanging out. All those tight, tight jeans. Yeah, you know, he dressed to the left. <laughs> My dad used to say that. We never packed to the right. You know, packed. Right. <laughs> never packed it to the right. He said. When you go to the tailor, you tell him. Yeah. You packed to the left. It was like the earring thing in the nineties. Remember? Yeah. If, if you, listen. It was to, a signal to the people that don't know. I don't know how anybody's going to take this nowadays. 
But back in the 90s, there was like a hidden code to where if you if you were a male and you got the ears pierced on the right ear, that was a sign that you were gay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So ridiculous. Now that I think about it, going back, but it, it, that's how... Yeah, there was. was I didn't know any gay people that lived by that. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny, man. Did you ever see the Office episode where Andy is getting his ear pierced, and Kelly's about to pierce him, and he's scared to death, and she's like, "It's just the ice cube, right?" And he's like, "Wait, is that the gay ear?" And then she says, "She says something like." Uh, the gay ear when you like five when you like twelve he's <laughs> scared to death to get his ears pierced. Oh god. But fascinating. I don't know. I, I got it the music aspect. I gotta thank my dad and my mom. Now my mom was it was like I killed somebody when I told her that I was doing great. Oh, we're doing great, thank you. Right. It was like it was like dropping the worst news ever when I started playing on my own and not playing drums as much anymore. It was devastating her, and still is, you know. Because why? The competitions, the all-state competitions, the jazz, the everything. Oh, right. She thought you were, that was my your mom, My mom was my... She drove me everywhere. Mm -hmm. She was. She bought uh, went into the music stores to buy all the drums. She, she was, was invested. She was definitely invested. <laughs> And I try to tell her, like, nah, I still play. Mm -hmm. But you can't set up a full drum set in an apartment and just go practice at 1 o'clock in the morning when I wake up. You know, do you think part of that was it was a way that she bonded with you that was going away? Or was it because she thought... This is you're so good at this. You yeah, can't give this up. More the second, mm -hmm. more the second than the first, but maybe the first. But I'm, I tried to tell her like, "Mom, this is me playing drums." You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I always try to tell. I let her know that I still play. You know? The reason I brought up the first thing is because I know that with my son, for example, totally different realm, but it was very bittersweet when he played his last hockey game okay. earlier. Yeah, that's right. This year. Because it was like this whole thing that bonded us together for the past, you know, since he was like nine, hmm. it's going away. So now I got to find new ways <laughs> to bond with him, which I, you know, I think uh, I've stumbled on a good, a good method of doing so, which is to um, take him to lunch to a new place in the city every time I see him now. Okay. He, this is the song that was the inspiration for your for into Philadelphia. That's correct. Yeah. My God, he's already. What did you just say? How old is he? He's a freshman in college. My God. Oh no. My God. It was pretty funny. Like, uh, remember Jay from Bonehead? Bonehead? Jay Manon. I remember Bonehead. He sent me, like, a photograph of... It's really nice. Like, whenever in Philadelphia gets played on MMR, somebody somewhere will take a picture of the radio in their car. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> and send it to me. It's a beautiful thing. And I think it was part of, you know, anytime there's, like, a Labor Day A to Z or whatever, it's always in the eyes, you know. It gets a spin. And it was so... You know, only recently has it hit me, like, this song 
has some legs. Mm -hmm. It's been around sure for, does. Yeah. you know, close to 20 years. <laughs> and it still holds up. It still holds up, so... Yeah, you you touched on that like that. You you captured that magic, man. That's the magic everybody's looking for. I don't know. When you you write. know, the, fun, the funny thing is, like when I wrote it, I considered it so like. It, it was coming from such a specific place in my brain that I was like, you know, it it, it didn't stand out to me to to be like, well, that song's gonna be a thing. Mm -hmm. It was just, oh, it's pretty good, yeah. you know. Oh, another song with a G chord. Okay, <laughs> that was probably my primary thought. <laughs> another song with a G chord, but it worked out. And, uh, you know, and it's, it's very great. Cool. The whole album is great, dude. I appreciate album. that. I mean, it's it's very cool to. Uh, I have it on compact disc. Well, that was the only way in which it was released. So yeah. The um. It's very cool because um, you've probably seen um, that Rondi Silvestro has moved into Studio B at Studio Four in recent months, and so I've been going there for different sessions here and there the past oh couple my God, of months great. and it's just such a time warp because there's there's literally the same <laughs> you know joke cans of like you know Campbell's cream of sperm that Phil Niccolo had sitting on the speakers <laughs> and you know cock of the mountain brand water chestnuts or whatever <laughs> And, uh, like, literally nothing's changed in there. Like, it's all just there. And I'm like, this is a time warp. It's I love incredible. places like that. It's great. Where you walk in and it's a whole different, like, it's right back to, to where... No, like, it's, it's it was very thing. transporting because yeah. it was, honestly, the last record I ever did on tape, which was insane at the time because, like, Phil was, like, producing... <laughs> he was like, oh, I really think we ought to cut this to tape. Turns out there's like a global tape shortage that year. Or over the, it was like a multi-year tape heck? shortage. And it was like literally $300 plus dollars a reel. Wow. To record on tape. So we spent probably like, you know, a quarter of the budget on just, just tape. Just tapes. <laughs> Because aren't are they like, I remember when I was recording analog, I think there's tapes for like 70 bucks, 60 or 70 bucks. Yeah, so four times the price, basically. Right. It's cool to be back there. I'm actually recording a gang vocal for one of my new songs there tomorrow morning. Nice. Which I'm very excited about. Oh, I can't wait to hear it. Got about 15, 20 people coming to that, which will be fun. No, I didn't think I would get that research on I don't know, man. Those are fun sessions when that kind of stuff happens. It's always good energy. I think in some ways it's my way of... You probably relate to this to, to a degree also. Like, music making is a very private thing for me these days because I do most of it by myself in solitude. Me too. Most of it's done at my actual house. And then I bring Ron or Joey DiTullio or Brett Talley into the process to 
you know, either, you know, maybe play one thing or mix it or whatever. And the feeling of creating with other people is less common for me. So I think having like little things like this where I bring a number of people into the process just for this one aspect of the song, it gives me that feeling that I like. Okay, good. Because, you know... I don't have a band. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Caulfields are a band, but right. we're we're happy to refer to ourselves as defunct all the time. It's always like we're not a real band, so we don't have to practice that hard, and we can just eat cheesecake all day. You know, we're not in it to win it. <laughs> and there's a certain part of that attitude that I miss. Yeah, you know, because when you know when Ike was together, or even John and Brittany, and mm-hmm. I was in it to win it. Yeah, and there's a, even you know even though and the same with you with Anthony Renzulli man, it's your thing. Yeah, and Ike, and I mean John and Brittany was a strange partnership, but you know there was ambition there yeah. and there was a feeling of of creating with other people and as it's growing in real time you get more invested into it right like way Once, more invested. you get one good thing to happen and then you're like all right let's all get right. another good thing yeah, to happen because right. you get a little rush right <laughs> I've had the carrot in my face, John, for so many years. I don't even eat vegetables anymore. I don't give a fuck. I got all the. I really don't, man. The vegetables all I need. I'm playing. Look, Frank Zappa had sent the best to you. He really did. I never felt so connected to somebody in my life when I heard this. I am going to make records with the music that I like to make so I could take it home. And listen to it with my friends. And if anybody else wants to listen to it, they can listen to it. Mm-hmm. I'd be happy to have them. Mm-hmm. If not, there's 19 billion other bands you can pick to listen to. And I'm happy with that. To where before, it's like I'm not out for world domination. I'm not out for that anymore. And you got to be realistic with the blues. It's a certain audience. And mm-hmm. I like that too. Mm-hmm. I like... There's so many times where I played acoustic open mic for metal bands, dude. Like, I've been in the worst situations you could ever think of <laughs> with a guitar strapped around me. Yeah. I've been in all of them, dude. Mm-hmm. All of the worst situations. From playing out street corners to, to all of that stuff. Yeah. To batteries dying on the TLA stage. <laughs> to, I've been in a lot of god-awful things, but a lot of great things, too. But I guess mm-hmm. that's how we learn. But anyway, I just want to make records that of music that I love. And it seems to be this. And to answer your question beforehand, it's like, yeah, I always played this kind of way, but like with, with the slide and things like that, but I always knew deep down in my soul that if I brought this to any of my band members, they would never go for it. And then I would lose a band. You know, if I started writing like this, especially in 2004, 5, 6, 7, when it was like emo and well, hardcore emo. And plus, you guys weren't set up to do that. <laughs> I had horn players. You know yeah. What I, mean? Like, yeah. I mean, there's horns in the blues, but 
you know, like yeah, I, I, it, at one point it was like a seven piece band and God bless all those guys because mm-hmm. they did most of that shit for free. Yeah. And a lot of people would give me shit about having my name as the band without any band members. But realistically, number one, the band was going to be called Long Haired Billy. That was the name that I wanted my band to be. What was it going to be called? Long Haired Billy. Long Haired Billy. Because <laughs> I had a friend named Billy and he had long hair, so we called him Long Haired Billy. <laughs> And I thought that was a great band name, especially since everybody in the band, none of us were named Billy, so it's totally confusing, you know? <laughs> but then we were like, no, nah, we can't do that. And then we all, I said, all right, then we all sit down, let's all think of a name. We passed them around, nobody ended up like, you know, like let's just call it AR Band. Like it's our band, AR Band. There you and go. Our band. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I was like, yeah, that's cool. Let's do that. And everybody's like, why do you call it your band? I knew from when I was 20 years old that I would be the last man standing in this entire operation. And I was 100% true. Because here I am, all the way back to the beginning, where I'm by myself again. And now if I'm going to be by myself, I'm playing whatever. Let me ask you something. Even though you had seven people, were you not the primary driver in a creative business? Every way imaginable? Oh, God. From booking the practices to to creating the flyers to booking the shows. Point being, to, even with that, to, you're still justified in to calling being it after face, yourself. There was a couple guys that would always go out to shows with me and support the band and stuff, but we were getting to the age where a lot of guys were getting married and having kids. Mm-hmm. Listen, if you're in a band right now, I'm going to give another one to the kids. <laughs> give it to the kids. This don't mean shit until after you're 30. Because that's the that's always the goal to the kids. I'm going to retire when I'm... How many times have you said, I'm going to retire when I'm 30 with all my mansions and all my this and that. And then you get to 30 and you're still playing bars and you're like, well, what the fuck? After 30, that's when you find out. If you're a lifer. Who the real lifers are. Yeah. It's after 30. It has well, nothing to yeah. do with kids. It has nothing to do with marriage. It's after 30. Well, I think you have to have been sort of struck down from your initial whatever first flush of any kind of success, be it modest or big, mm-hmm. you need to be knocked down oh, a yeah. peg or several oh, yeah. to then decide. Actually, it's kind of a big theme in my book, which is how I picked myself up after the Caulfields imploded 25 years ago this year. Actually, our anniversary of breaking up was uh, in August. The breakup anniversary. Yeah. Bittersweet. And um, I look back at that point as being the closest I've ever come to not staying in music. Mm. And it wasn't until like a very unexpected pep talk from my own mother, who always supported me, but never in a you-can-do-it kind of way. It was really just she facilitated things for me when I seemed to be in need of that. But in this instance, I think she acknowledged something in me which she never verbally did before that, which was that this wasn't just some flight of fancy on my part to pursue this. This was something that was very, very in my figurative marrow. 
And that is literally the talk that allowed me to give myself permission to keep going. Because, you know, by that point, I was married. Yeah. I did not yet have kids, but the clock was starting to tick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, I was definitely feeling some pressure, both internal and external, about that. Mm. And so to make a decision to basically be like, well, I'm going to keep going, even though I've lost everything that I've spent the last decade and a half. Because music is what saves you. This is what what I was trying. This all ties in what we first started talking about. Mm -hmm. You got to that point where you were all the way at the bottom. For in your yeah. in your space, you were yeah. at the bottom of it, and I know that feeling when band members quit. Man, that's the worst feeling ever. And I always felt bad, but when I quit bands, mm-hmm. because as a leader of a band, I know that feeling. You know that's a bad feeling. Yeah. And it, it, I, I always, I always felt even if it's the right move for everybody concerned, it's still a bad feeling. Exactly. <laughs> It is because you build camaraderie with bands, you know, like you do, especially if you go on the road and do that kind of thing. Like you, you know, you're so invested, and then when somebody leaves, you take it so personal. Mm -hmm. For somebody as invested as I am, it's so personal. Yeah. What did I do? Did I not write the greatest songs? It's like when, when you're a leader of a band with your name on it. You're married to seven people in the band. Now imagine being married to seven people. You gotta please every single one of them, dude. It's an impossible task, which is why the common person is not married to seven people. You know what I mean? It's an impossible task. So when they when they leave, you start saying like, "Did I not give them enough attention? Did they not?" You start th- going down all these crazy paths, and now I'm just back back to myself, and I, I kind of just want to stay there and just you know hire guys that, that want to do it, and yeah. And now with this Delta Blues style stuff, it is also low acoustic, so everybody wins in my head. You know? So, you were telling me that you basically made this record by working at the vinyl factory to pay it off? Yes, uh, like, that's true. That, uh, <laughs> a part of that is true, for sure. So Phil, Niccolo, and well, Obi mass- O'Brien yes. start this vinyl business thing as I'm- in the pandemic. As I'm recording on the side, okay. I already started the record, me and Mike Lawson from Sign Studios. Mike Lawson is like my, uh, you know, like a Steve Perry, uh, not Steve Perry, Joe Perry, Steve Tyler, Perry, yeah. Paige Plant. It's like Lawson and me are that mm-hmm. connection. And Matt's right there in the Sign Studio. So that's where that, that's where I started recording it. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, Obe and Phil are opening this uh, record plant. And within, it seems, five minutes, it's extremely successful. Right. 
and machines are coming in and out and whatever. And I worked out a little deal where, like, you know, I fix guitars and everything. So, like, I work on a lot of Obi's guitars and I work on a lot of Phil's guitars and everything. And I do. They're always willing to pay. They're always willing to pay me. Obi's always willing to give me money and stuff. But I'd rather put it towards my record. And, and right. Because what's the difference, really, if you're paying? You're just going to give it back. You're just going to give it back anyway. But, like, I am paying for all the artwork. I pay for the plate everything mm -hmm. like uh, because i want to like you know yeah. what I mean? like i i, I want to do that and there's no like ties or anything like i'm not signed with anybody or nothing but so, they're just helping me out you know? and they're great guys because i know you to. and obi go way back that started from when i was in soraya okay because i didn't meet because they were basically in a production deal with him and john bon jovi right mm -hmm. or from what I remember, yes. Yeah. But that all started. Jay Maraglia mm -hmm. was playing drums for me. Mm -hmm. And he was got asked by somebody in Soraya to play drums on a couple songs for the record. Mm -hmm. And Jay was gravitating towards there. And my band was over at this point. That lineup was over. So I was like, you know what, man? I'm not doing anything, dude. If they need to... If they need anybody to play rhythm, I'd love to play rhythm, you know what I mean, or something, you know, because I know they got a lead guy. Well, long story short, I said, yeah, come down here and try out. I got a call from Sue and went from there, and then when I went to Sign Studios to record a track for them, I actually met Obi first at his house to, to work on the parts or whatever, mm -hmm. and it was so funny. Everything would ever be funny. Let me give you that story. Please. First time I ever meet this guy, I go in his house. He's got a fucking grand piano, like in his living room. Like a beautiful house. A little intimidating coming from Akko, New Jersey. <laughs> so I go in there and he teaches me the parts or whatever. And he's like, you know, you're going to have it down by tomorrow or whatever. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll just stay up all night and learn. It's not a big deal. He's like, no, 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 no. I need you, I need you to be refreshed. You know, like, for and I was like, no, I'll get some sleep. Don't worry about it. I'll be, I'll be all right for tomorrow. <laughs> I'm a nervous wreck. You uh -huh. know what I mean? Like, yes, thank you so much. And I'm like a nervous wreck. So, like, I go to his house, right? And we learn all these parts, and he goes to... So he's teaching you this stuff for Soraya. This is for Soraya. Okay. It was a track called Against the Wall, which ended up being a B-side, I think, on their record. But they, they just had such great songs, and they were going down this route that I that I, I really, really loved the music. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know what? I love the guitar, too. And I don't have to write any songs, and I don't have to think about lyrics. And, mm -hmm. and I just love music, you know, and, and the vibe, and, and those guys are, you know, they're just great. But he goes, well, I'm leaving Obi's house before the session, and he goes, you got to let me know if you can or can't do this, because I have to call Richie and have Richie come in and do it. And I go, Richie who? And he goes, Sambora. <laughs> and like, I was like, why did he just tell me that? Why Get in your brain. Just... <laughs> so I'm thinking oh, like, my God. it comes down to me or a complete legend. All right. Mm -hmm. All right. I stay up all fucking night. All night. That's so funny. Two takes, man. Went in there, knocked it right out. And then transposed it, too, which I'm not good at at all. Mm. Where you got to put it 
on a capo and then relearn it. Mm-hmm. They're big with that shit, man. And theory oh, for is, the other track. Yeah, theory's it's not my thing, man. And God bless Travis and and then and Brian. They they taught me as as the theory aspect of music. I learned from those guys. I'm sure I And the one four fives and all that because before it was like I just see here and then I play. I could just like I'd hear it and I'm see it and play it. I, I don't really know theory that well. Mm-hmm. I would do very bad in Bruce Springsteen's band. Put it that way. I'd fail miserably. I didn't, I didn't realize he was a big theory guy. Little Steven told me they got like 250 songs in that practice. Well, that is true. You got to know. And if he changes the key, dude, he changes the key. I'll never forget yeah. that when he told me that too. So, wow, working working with them was great. I, I had a, a really fun time, but after a while, it started like that writing it started coming back, and that you know, and right. And when you feel like your own my personal life was artistry, at that point, has to take priority. At that point, my personal life, like I told you earlier, was was it was it was already coming down. So I was like, why don't I just be honest with them and just let them know that I can't do this anymore. I got I got to take care of shit mm-hmm. going on in my personal life. And then all of a sudden I was, I jumped right back into it, which I didn't want to do. And I played with you first. <laughs> this was in 2014. I oh, went and man. I did five shows mm-hmm. in 2014. And I went, you know, it wasn't just the east, uh, just the East Coast. It wasn't. Yeah. And I went, and man, I was I was miserable. I was miserable doing it because I just wasn't ready. Yeah. I didn't like any of my songs from the past. I've grown so much since I've done any of my shit, and I just got in a rut completely. Yeah. It was like I, John, I was going 22 years straight with no fucking break. Yeah. Between the drums and my own shit, that's a long time. So I took a break for two years, three years, and in those two, three years, became immersed with the guitar, the blues. I put down everything. Yeah. From women to alcohol. Everything. Everything. And just focused on the guitar, the blues, and what I love to do. And if I get to that point where I want to make a record, cool. And if I don't, who cares? You know what I mean? Because you're getting what you want out of playing. Right. And it was the easiest record I've ever made in my life. Because I would just eat dinner, I'd write a part, and I'd call it Mike. And i go, hey man, you at the studio or something? Yeah. All right, I got a couple parts. I want to lay this down real quick, and it's fresh. I don't. I'm not overworking it, so mm-hmm. I'll see you in a half hour. And then I go there and I lay that guitar track down. Every song That's on my wild. new record coming out, mm-hmm. there was maybe one or two songs that I had fully worked out. Everything else was kind of created in the studio and in the moment. That's why it's so raw. That's yeah. why it's just me sitting down playing. Some songs all at once, some songs vocal guitar, but it's all performance based. Yeah. And, you know, you cheat certain ways, everybody does digitally, but there was no cheating on the vocal, there was no cheating on the guitar, period. There was punches, maybe. Yeah. On some of the electric songs, there was punches. But essentially, it's just you sitting there playing and singing the song. That's why you hear all the rubs, you hear all the, leave it in there, I don't care. Doesn't matter, I'm not going for anything, I just want to write an authentic record. Yeah, plus... Because I think people should have that on their record. Mm-hmm. Especially with the fucking Grammys and everything else. 
on the back of your record, you should say, this is a performance-based record, mm -hmm. this is a digital-based record, and it should be judged accordingly, period. And you will see very, the well, will never do it. Let's be honest. No, they won't. There should be, <laughs> there should be a performance. You should be able to list like this. Remember back in the day, no synthesizers were used on this recording. <laughs> on the Queen records, yeah. Queen records and <laughs> Rage Against the Machine records when they first started making this. Isn't records. that funny? What, no a hill, what a hill to die on in 1975. <laughs> My gosh. My gosh. But yeah, it's been a long, it's been a long run. Still nowhere close to where I want to be, but the fixing guitars thing. Mm -hmm. I've been so immersed with it since Which, I was a little child. Yeah. I just, I would always fix. I'd sit there as a five-year-old with a guitar on my lap and not really know what to do with it. It would just be there. Like, I would just have a, a guitar with me at all times. Yeah. I actually don't remember my life without a guitar in it. That there, my friends, is a man who loves the guitar. He can play them. He can fix them. He's a renaissance guitar man. If that's a real term. And, you know, you know what? You know what? It is now. That was my conversation with my friend Anthony Renzulli. Be on the lookout for Mad Mad Blues. You can stay in the loop on all things AR at his website, anthonyrenzulli.com. And thank you for staying in the loop with all things me. I'm about to spend some time on the road. I'm playing guitar with my friends in Soraya for a couple of shows next week with Joan Jett and the Blackhearts in the lovely towns of uh, Shipshawana, Indiana, and uh, Wisconsin Dells, Wisconsin. So I'm very excited to be getting back out into the Midwest for a few shows. And when I come back from that, I'll be doing a big show with David Wissickinen's In the Pocket. Um, they've, they've got me singing disco inferno on this one so I'm, I'm brushing up on my saturday night fever soundtrack and growing my chest hair back as we speak <clears throat> i'll catch you again next time on talking at the diner, talking at the diner.